Thank you, Joe. If you want a good devotional book, The Finishing Touch by Chuck Swindoll is an excellent one. You can't have mine. Mine's autographed. Um, it's not autographed to you, and so if you get mine, we're going to have a message on stealing. Uh, but, uh, in week 34 on Tuesday, Swindoll writes these words. Tucked away in a quiet corner of Scripture is a verse containing much emotion. From the city men groan, and the souls of the wounded cry out. Job 24 and verse 12. The scene is a busy metropolis, speed, movement, noise, rows of building, miles of apartments and houses and restaurants, stores, schools, cars, bikes, kids. All that is obvious, easily seen and heard by the city dweller. But there is more. Behind and beneath the loud splash of human activity are the invisible aches. Job calls them groans. That's a good word. The Hebrew term enlarges it as to suggest that this groan comes from one who has been wounded. Perhaps that the reason that Job adds the next line in poetic form, the souls of the wounded cry out. In that line, wounded comes from a term that means pierced. He is not referring to a physical stabbing, for it is the soul that is crying out. Job is speaking of those whose hearts have been broken, those who suffer from the blows of soul stabbing, which can be far more bloody and painful than body stabbing. The city is full of such, the wounded, bruised and broken, crying out in groans from the heart. That describes some of you, I'm certain. You may be groaning because you have been misunderstood or treated unfairly. The wound is deep because the blow came from one whom you trusted and respected. It's possible that hurt was brought on by the stabbing of someone's tongue. They are saying things that are simply not true, but to step in and set the record straight would be unwise or inappropriate. So you stay quiet and bleed. Perhaps a commitment, or perhaps a comment was made only in passing, but it pierced you deeply. Others of you are living with the memories of past sins or failures. Although you have confessed and forsaken those ugly, bitter days, the wound stays red and tender. You wonder if it will ever heal, although it is unknown to others. You live in the fear of being found out and rejected. Tucked away in a quiet corner of every life are wounds and scars. If they were not there, we would need no physician, nor would we need one another. Hast thou no wound, no wound, no scar, Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole, can he have followed very far, who has no wound and has no scar. Jesus Christ was the epitome of kindness. He was God in flesh. 
And the Scripture tells us that God is love, and so He was love in flesh. And yet man cursed Him and spit upon Him and beat Him and used Him and abused Him and killed Him and mocked Him. Kindness is a rare quality in our culture. I'm a little concerned because parents don't teach their kids anymore to say yes sir and no sir and yes ma'am and no ma'am. Got a lot of yeah. Get smart aleck kids talking to adults that need their mouths with soap in them. We don't know much about kindness. We don't know much about politeness. You know, politeness now, guys, is for us, is we take that automatic door opener and we push the button so our wife can get the door open without waiting for us to open ours. That's politeness now. We are a rude culture. We are an unkind culture. When you live in a world where people shoot somebody on an interstate and on a highway because you pulled in front of them, we've forgotten what kindness means. Kindness is an act of loyalty. An act of loyalty. It is not an emotion as much as it is an action. The Old Testament word is hesed. It means that there is a commitment on our part to loyal love. Not convenient love, not circumstantial love, but loyal love to one another. It is God's love for us that was kind in our behalf. It is God's love for us that gives us the ability to be kind to others. I don't know about you, but as I've gone through the fruit of the Spirit, I've come, to, come under incredible conviction. You know, I thought this was going to be an easy series to preach. It's a difficult series to preach. It is a much harder series to live. Now, anybody else have that problem besides me? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I'm just glad there's an end to the list. I am preaching with that in sight that I will finally get to the end. Of course, the last one is self-control. <laughs> Kindness is an action. It is the ethic of the second mile. You and I going the second mile in our faith and in our walk with God and believing that God has something that He wants to do through us. Rahab the harlot expected kindness from the spies in Joshua chapter 2 because she had been kind to them when they came into a strange land. Joseph expected kindness from the cupbearer because of what he had done in interpreting the dream in Genesis chapter 40. The word kindness is distinct from mercy and compassion, but it is always intermingled with the word grace. In fact, the word is used in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament Greek Septuagint. It talks about kind or good figs and kind or good gold and kind or good precious stones. In other words, there is a quality of excellence about kindness. Kindness doesn't just happen. It's not even the way you were raised or the way you were not raised. Kindness has to do with what Jesus Christ has done for you and then you, in fact, turn around and do to other people. The term in the New Testament means moral goodness that enables us to be kind to others. The emphasis is on actions, and particularly God's actions towards sinners. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, said, In order that in the ages to come 
he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, why kindness? Kindness is not an inconvenience that we are to avoid. It is a character trait that we are to embrace. It is not just an attitude. It's an approach to life. That you and I are to approach life with kindness. God expects it of us. Jesus of Nazareth says it's a non-negotiable quality for us to have that. The Word of God commands us to be kind. In, Col- in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, it says we are to clothe ourselves in patience and goodness and in kindness. The word clothe means to put on. Now you got dressed today and you came to church and you put on a dress or you put on a suit or you put on pants. It depends on if you're a man or woman, but you, you got dressed. You put on stuff. Did you also get dressed spiritually? Did you put on kindness and goodness and patience and love and peace? Did you clothe yourself spiritually when you came today? For you see, it is an attitude and an approach to life. It is how we view the Christian life is that we are to be people who have kindness. Now, the first thing we have to remember is the kindness of God. First of all, God is generous to the ungrateful. Turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 and verse 35. Luke 6 and verse 35. And you may want to hold Luke chapter 6 because we're going to go back there in just a minute. God is generous to the ungrateful. Luke chapter 6 and verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Now notice, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. This world thinks that God has a four-letter last name. But God, by not striking them and killing them and sending them directly to hell, is showing that He is kind to ungrateful men. You see, just as people try to damn God, people can also be damned by God to an eternal hell because they reject God, and God could do it now. In every moment that His Word is taken in vain, in every moment that His Son is blasphemed, in every moment that we sin against God, God could do that, but God is gracious and kind to ungrateful men. And the world doesn't appreciate it either. The world does not appreciate that God has stayed His judgment. The world thinks that they deserve better, which is the second point. God is good to the unrepentant. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You see, it wasn't the fear of hell that led most of us to repent. Especially those of us who were saved as small children. It wasn't the fear of hell that got us saved. It was the love of God that God loves me. Somebody said, Jesus loves you. And we accepted that, and we believed that, and we took that in, and we found out that God loved us even though we were sinners. 
Now, I don't know how much sin you committed when you were five years old, but you committed a lot probably. But you know, you, you got saved and God loved you and His kindness led to repentance. Some people get saved under hellfire preaching, but most people get saved because they see the love of God exhibited in other people. It's the love of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It's not for God so rebuked and hated and despised the world that God was mean to the world. God loved a world that was mean to Him. And His graciousness and His goodness is given to the unrepentant. Thirdly, He is gracious to the undeserving. Titus chapter 3 and verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. God is gracious to the undeserving. Let me ask you something. Do you really think you deserve to be saved? I don't. I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve one thing God's ever given me. I've, none, I've done nothing to merit the goodness and graciousness and kindness of God, and yet He's given it. You know, when you study the life of Christ, it's very interesting when you look at His, his pattern with people. With prostitutes and with publicans, Jesus was always kind and gracious. You know, they're the people we're ugly to. But with Pharisees... Jesus said, you're whitewashed tombs and of your father the devil. Now why was Jesus so strong with Pharisees and so kind to prostitutes and publicans? Because the Pharisees believed in a God as He is not. And the prostitutes and the publicans needed to know a God as He is. You see, the Pharisees didn't believe that God was love. They believed God was law and rules. The Pharisees were caught up in their self-righteousness. These people had no self-righteousness. They knew they were guilty. The woman at the well knew she was guilty. She knew she was a sinner. She didn't need Jesus to push her down the well and baptize her. She needed Jesus to love her so she could go in town and tell people that she had met one who knew everything about her and yet loved her. So I just don't know about loving people. That's part of the problem with the church today. The world doesn't think we love them, and when they think we don't love them, they think Jesus doesn't love them. We're supposed to stand against sin. I understand all that, but we're ugly to sinners. We treat sinners caustically. We're supposed to hate sin and love sinners. It was the address of Jesus to one of the churches in Revelation. You hate the Nicolaitans. I hate their deeds, but I don't hate them. And you and I have got to understand that God has called us who are undeserving to love undeserving people. We are to rejoice in the God of kindness. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63. Isaiah knew the power and the majesty and the glory of God. He had seen the Lord high and lifted up in the year the king Uzziah died. He said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. But now in chapter 63, he sees a different characteristic of God. 
Now there are people that tell you that God never exhibited grace and never exhibited kindness until Jesus Christ. There's a different God in the Old Testament than there was in the New Testament. Just proves that those people don't read their Bible. Isaiah 63 and verse 7. I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his compassion and according to the multitude of his loving kindness. You see, the loving kindness of God in the Old Testament was in direct contrast to the gods of the people. Their gods were fickle. Their gods had to be appeased. Uh, they had to make sure their gods were happy. And the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah God, said, I will make a covenant with people and I will love you even when you don't love me back. I will stand by you even when you won't stand by me. I will protect you even in bondage when you don't recognize me. You remember the book of Judges? The people kept sinning against God and sinning against God and God would send a deliverer because they did what was right in their own eyes and there was no king in Israel rejecting God's love. There arose a generation that did not know the God of Moses or of Joshua. In Nehemiah chapter 9, these words are written, When they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. I tell you, I'm just, you know, if I was God, after about the third time around in rebellion, I just said, let's just wipe out the whole group and start over. Aren't you glad he didn't? Aren't you glad that God is a covenant-keeping God? that when God makes a promise to you, He doesn't break it because you break your side of the bargain. That when God says, I'll do something for you, He does it. You can always stand up to the fact that God is going to keep His Word even when we don't keep ours. You see, we rejoice in the kindness of God. I mean, there's much to rejoice about that God has been kind to us and God has been good to us and God has blessed us in so many ways and you say, well, I'm wounded and I'm hurt. Yeah, but you've been blessed a lot too. You have much to be grateful for. You have much to praise God about. And so that brings us to the revealing of kindness to others. The ministry of kindness is a ministry which may be achieved by all men, the author says. Brilliance of mind, capacity for deep thinking have rendered great service to humanity but by themselves they are impotent to dry a tear or mend a broken heart. Well, the points on this are the same as the points about God because what God does for us, we are to do for other people. So the first thing is we are to be generous to the ungrateful. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 and verse 36. Luke 6 and 36. Be merciful. Why? Just as your Father is merciful. And do not judge. And you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Or pardon, and pardon, and you will be pardoned. You see, God's not looking for cheerleaders who depend on crowd response to do their job. God is looking for people who will obey the Word and treat people the way God has treated us. Joseph Jobert says, A part of kindness consists of loving people more than they deserve. 
Now, we pretend to love each other sometimes, don't we? This way means yes. This way means no. I mean, we pretend to love each other. Hey, how are you? Good to see you. Good to... Jerk. <laughs> Bless you. How's your family? How's everything going? Hope he rots. Hey, everything going okay? You doing well, guy? Fine. Good, good, good. You know, left that Sunday school class because I couldn't stand those people. Hey, good, good. We're fine. We're doing good. We're doing good. See, we pretend. That's part of the problem with the church. We pretend to love each other. But let somebody do something you don't like and you withdraw your love or I withdraw my love. Because we don't really love. We just pretend to love. Because we're supposed to be nice people. But you see, the world sees through pretense. But the world cannot convict us if we're real and say, oh, they're fakes, because real shows up. You see, it's not about pretending, it's about a pattern, a pattern of kindness. And the problem is that sometimes people think kindness is weakness. And so you don't want to be kind sometimes because you think, well, if I'm kind, they're going to think I'm weak and they'll run me over. But you see, kindness is going the second mile. It's turning the cheek. It's, it's giving your cloak. It's doing whatever you've got to do as a loyal act of love. And God's Word says we are to be generous to the ungrateful. Here's what I think that means very simply. Ungrateful people expect you to condemn them, and what they need to get from you is compassion. They expect condemnation. You should give compassion. Now, secondly, we should be good to the unrepentant. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. Let me ask you to turn there if you would. In chapter 2 and verse 3, Peter says, If you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord, he's referring back to the fulfillment of Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. But in verse 12, he talks about how we are to act toward the unrepentant, toward the lost. Frederick Farber says, Kindness has converted more sinners than zeal, eloquence, or learning. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Now, Paul, uh, Peter is talking about lost people. Keep your behavior excellent among lost people so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. I have a little note written by that verse. It very simply says this, Don't be thin-skinned. Don't be thin-skinned. Yeah, don't take offense at everything. Don't walk around with a chip on your shoulder. Don't try to read something into everything. Let your behavior be excellent. I want to ask you something. If we sent out a SWAT team to do a poll of people that you've encountered this past week, would they accuse you of your behavior being excellent in all things? You know, the waitress that gave you the wrong order, that didn't take the onions off the salad like you asked her to. 
You know, the guy at the gas station that just couldn't seem to get it together. You know, the, the grocery store clerk that couldn't get it. You know, the person at Walmart that went, price check on aisle seven. And it took somebody 45 minutes to walk three feet and go, oh no, it's the last one. Kindness. I'll never forget Ken Chafin at the Billy Graham School of Evangelism in 1976, a church full of preachers. And he said, now we're about to be dismissed. And gentlemen, I want to remind you that you're men full of God and you're men of the Word and you're men of faith. He said, I just want to remind you, you have an hour and a half to eat lunch and get back for the afternoon session. Don't treat the waitress like it's her problem when she's not expecting 3,000 preachers to show up. Well, it's hard for us to be kind, isn't it? Kind, good to the unrepentant. You know, you'll never win the world by criticizing it. I'm afraid that one of the reasons why the world rejects the gospel is because kindness is the last word they think about when they think of Christians. Oh yeah, Christians, oh, they picket. They boycott. They stand in front of abortion clinics. They do all this kind of stuff. But when have we ever been kind to people? I mean, it's easy to be against everything, but what are you for? When have you been kind to somebody? Listen, they're unrepentant. Satan has blinded the minds and the eyes of the unbelievers. They don't know they're doing wrong. They've been blinded by the enemy. Don't treat them like they're the enemy. They've been blinded by the enemy. Love lost people. That's what Jesus did. Well, he didn't have to deal with lost people we deal with. Yes, he did. He had to deal with you. See, God called us to love the unrepentant. Do you love people? We love the people that love us. Well, anybody can do that. But do you love people that are not very lovely? He says we're to be good to the unrepentant. Now, finally, he says we're to be gracious to the undeserving. Turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is recounting here in his own personal testimony about how we are supposed to live. And certainly the people that Paul was dealing with didn't deserve a man of the caliber of Paul because here was a man who had seen Jesus on the Damascus Road and he was dealing with all kinds of situations everywhere he went. He was being persecuted by the Judaizers. He was being confronted by the Gnostics. I mean, everywhere he turned, there was somebody battling the gospel. You know, I mean, Paul probably wanted to retire to the Riviera somewhere. Just say, forget all this. But you see, Paul said in verse 3, giving no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry be not discredited. In other words, Paul is saying there must be no justification to malign the gospel or the ministry or the church. Don't give the world a reason to point to the church and say, yeah, you see, that's why I don't go to church. That's why I don't get up on Sunday morning and get dressed. 
because of the way those people are down there. You know what everybody in this town knows about? They know about every church fight and every split and every problem in every church. They don't know about people that have been saved. They don't know about people that have been baptized. They don't know about families that have been put together. They don't know about kids and prodigals that have come back. Every lost person in this town knows about every piece of junk in every church in this town, and the devil makes sure of it. But you say, well, what do you know is going on down at this church down there? I don't know. Well, did you know that there were some families that God got together that were about to divorce? No, I didn't know that. Did you know that there were some kids that were saved that were on drugs? No, I didn't know that. Why don't you know that? Because we don't tell them that. They overhear us telling them all the junk. And no wonder. I mean, can you believe it? Now listen, think about this. They'd rather go to hell than be with us. And that ought to embarrass the fool out of us. People would rather go to hell than be around most church members because being around most church members for them is like being in hell already. Oh, how do you treat the undeserving? Paul says, I don't want to do anything that discredits the ministry. In other words, I want to be a good billboard for God. I want to be a good advertisement for God. I want people to look at me and say, that's what I want my life to be like. That's the way I want to live, verse 4. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. Now, he gives some general trials here in much endurance and afflictions and hardships and distresses. Then in verse 5, he begins to talk about trials that are inflicted by others in beatings, imprisonments, and tumults. And then he begins to talk about trials from just being a part of the ministry in labors and sleeplessness in hunger. But then he changes the direction in verse 6, and he's talking about no cause for offense, the ministry not being discredited, and everything commending ourselves in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. These are the character qualities that Paul says if the ministry is not going to be discredited, if we are to commend ourselves, these are the things that people should see in us. You say, well, I can't do that. You're right. But he can. I can't do it either. I mean, you know. You know. You grit your teeth and try to be kind. I'll be nice to them for a while, but not for long. But you see, when the Holy Spirit controls us, we don't have to pretend to be nice. We can be nice. Does that mean we never confront? Does that mean we never, we never stand up for anything that we believe? Absolutely not. But it means the spirit in which you do it with is patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. It's the spirit that does it. Now I want to give you one last passage of Scripture before we leave this morning. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 32. I want you to follow with me in this very lengthy passage because it has to do with how you and I are seen by Jesus. You know, what's, what's the Lord doing right now? Matthew 25 and verse 32 tells us there's coming a day and all the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, and to the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That passage bothers me. It bothers me because all my life I've grown up hearing about how liberals are committed to socialism and liberal theologians are committed to a social gospel and conservatives are not as involved. We just care about souls. According to Jesus, when you care about souls, you get involved in their lives. You see, I'm afraid that in our self-righteous pride in being right, we're people of the book. I'm afraid that in our pride, as we've gotten more conservative, we have become less compassionate. We're not interested in meeting the needs of people. We're not interested in, in stopping and helping somebody. We're not interested in going out of our way to do anything. Oh, we'll do it for people we know in our Sunday school class. But for strangers, absolutely not. But you see, when the gospel gets a hold of us, folks, it takes our belief in Jesus and it puts it into practice and we do it to the least of these. doesn't matter who they are. doesn't matter what they're standing. They may be the up and out. They may be the down and out. They may be on their way out. I don't know who they are, but they're people that you and I need to minister to. And Jesus said, what you do to them, you do to me. Now, it's interesting to me that both groups, the sheep and the goat, were surprised. They were not surprised by where they ended up. They were surprised at why they were there. See, the, the, the sheep were just doing what they knew to do because they had the love of Jesus inside them. So naturally, loving Jesus, if there's a layman, you reach down and say, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. 
If there's a need, you meet the need. If you're a Christian, you just do those things. And so the sheep were surprised that Jesus said, when you did that, I was there. And the goats were surprised. Because the goats were saying, if I'd known that was you, I would have stopped. I mean, you know, I mean, you've got to keep up your image. They were surprised that Jesus was there. Can I give you a little mental picture to kind of help you in how you treat people? Come here, Joe. <laughs> if Joe is a believer, and he is, as far as I know, I, I believe he is. I confess. Then that means, according to Scripture, that the Holy Spirit resides in him. Is that right? Okay. That means that Jesus Christ has taken up residence in his life. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So that means that if I'm going to have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, then what I do to him, I'm in fact doing to Jesus Christ. That's right. You understand that? That means if I'm ugly to Joe, I'm ugly to Jesus. If I gossip about Joe, I gossip about Jesus. If I'm unkind to Joe, I'm unkind to Jesus. If I tell a lie about Joe, I've lied about Jesus because his body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The same goes with how he treats me. You see, because if I walk up to Joe and the first thing I think is, whatever I do to him today, I am doing to Jesus Christ. I'm going to approach him a little differently, aren't I? I mean, I'm going to treat him a little differently. And it's not going to be plastic and it's not going to be fake because if Christ is inside of him, then if I do it to him, you say, well, he's one of the least. That's all right. Jesus is still there. That's right. If I do something to him, I'm doing it to Jesus. Part of our problem, folks, is we don't believe that when we meet people, we're meeting Jesus. And Jesus says, when you meet people, you're meeting me. And what you do to them, you're doing to me. And by the way, he says, I'm taking notes. I saw what you did. I saw what you didn't do. I saw the shunning. I, I saw the cold shoulder. I, I saw the smirk. I heard the remark. You understand? You see, the way I treat you and the way you treat me is the way we're treating Jesus. And if we're not treating each other with kindness, no wonder the world doesn't want Jesus because they don't want us the way we're picturing Him. Now, can I just tell you something? I'm going to anyway. I just wanted to. We started out with love. And Jesus said we're to love our enemies and love those who despitefully use us. We start out with love and then joy and peace and patience and kindness. And it just keeps going on and God just keeps rubbing this in. And God just keeps saying this is the way we're supposed to be. Folks, listen. If you can't from your heart be gracious to people who are even your enemies... then your problem is not the people you think are your enemies. Your problem is with Jesus Christ. I've learned something in 25 years of ministry. 
make a decision somebody doesn't like and they won't talk to you. They'll ignore you. They'll snub you. They'll stick their hands in their pockets so they don't have to shake hands with you. They'll turn around and go the other way. They won't look you in the eye. I can always tell when somebody's attitude changes about me because they won't talk to me. They won't look at me. I always tell it. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. I always tell them if some decision has been made somebody didn't like. You know what, folks? Your problem's not with a decision. Your problem's with Jesus. Because when you're filled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ, you can be kind to your enemies. But if you're not filled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ, you'll be unkind to your enemies, and you won't treat your friends very well either. Because you see, kindness is the evidence of the Spirit of God in our lives. And the sad thing is, in the world, the way the world describes kindness, there are some lost people more gracious than God's people. Now let me ask you, are you a kind person? Are you killing people with kindness? Paul said, boy, just pour coals of fire over their head. And we think, yeah, that's it, man. I want to pour some fire on their head. Actually, that was a compliment. It means you take some of the fire that burns within you and you put it on them and you warm them up. And you share some of your blessings with them to be a blessing to them. Paul wasn't saying doing it to make them, to burn them up. Paul was saying doing it because by doing it, you're sharing with them a very part of who you are. Kindness. Oh, I'm going to tell you. If we could just be kind for one week, the world would notice. Because they've already noticed our unkindness. By the way, whether it's Joe or your wife or your kids or your boss or your employees or the waitress that will wait on you in just a few moments when you go out to eat. Kill them with kindness. You'll be more like Jesus when you do. Great is the Lord and worthy of glory. Great is the Lord and worthy of praise. Thank you for watching the Sherwood Hour from Sherwood Baptist Church in Albany, Georgia. We would enjoy hearing from you with your comments or how we may be able to meet a need in your life. If you'd like to get in touch with us, just write to the address that you see on the screen or call us at area code 912-883-1910. That's area code 912-883-1910. Now, if you'd like a copy of today's message, just call us or request it by mail. Be sure to ask for the tape number that you see at the bottom of your screen. Once again, we are delighted that you've joined us for the Sherwood Hour today and invite you to join us again real soon as we worship the true and living God together. You're watching Channel 15, the Sherwood Channel, a media ministry of Sherwood Baptist Church in Albany, Georgia. The Sherwood Channel, it's television that really makes a difference.
invite you to be with us at Sherwood Baptist Church on Sunday, August 31st for the 9.30 and 11 o'clock morning worship service as Dick and Mel Tunney share in music and ministry. And then at 6.30 that same evening, a complete concert, including video music. It's going to be a great experience in music and worship with Dick and Mel Tunney and all of our services with a special concert at 6.30 on Sunday, August 31st. Do come and join us. Thank you.